generously to helping them get uh, get their building re- reset and re-cleaned and uh, established again. Hey, uh, this morning we are going to, so grab your Bible, we're going to spend a bit of time in the Bible. <coughs> we'll get the uh, PowerPoint up on the screen, thanks Isaac. <coughs> this morning if you want to open your Bible, the first bit I'm going to get you to open up to is Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 9. And um, while you're getting that ready, let me just set the scene for what we're up to for the next little, the next few weeks. Uh, Obviously, we're in a time uh, where in the Christian calendar, we take time every year to journey our lives with God towards the cross. Okay, Easter's coming up again. And one of the things that we do in the lead up to Easter is we just take time to get ourselves geared in on what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and have to engage with the cross and what Jesus has done for us on the cross, through the cross and over the grave. And we do that every, every year. Now, one of the things that we do is, is or in churches is there's this season called Lent. And Lent is, um, if we can just jump onto the next slide, thanks guys. It's, what, is, what is Lent? Some of you may come from a, a long tradition of church life that says, oh yeah, I know what Lent is. Some of us here may not understand what Lent is. So just, just briefly, Lent is a very small period of time, a matter, a matter of days, where we intentionally give ourselves to the conversation that Jesus wants to have with us about the cross. And it's a time where we remember the journey that the Scriptures tell us of Jesus where he faced Jerusalem and knowing what was set before him, he went to the cross. It's important for us to do this because we're a people of Jesus Many people wear the cross of Jesus on a necklace, a piece of gold. Some people have a cross on the sticker on their car. Some people have a cross tattooed on their body. Crosses here, there and everywhere. Many people wear them as a fashion icon or a statement. But the cross is something that you can't walk around when it comes to being in a relationship with Jesus. You have to go with Jesus to the cross and through the cross, and often on a daily basis. But Lent is this period of time where we focus our faith. And I want to encourage you to do that. Over the next six or seven weeks leading into Easter, there's a big conversation God wants to have with each and every one of us about why he went to the cross for you, for the people of this community, for the people of our region, and for the sake of the world. And it's, it's a time where we ask ourselves some very honest questions about our faith and about our, the nature of our discipleship response to Jesus in light of the cross. The cross kind of, it gets a little demanding of our attention and that's a good thing, because if you're like me, I'm a little bit like my seven-month-old dog. 
if you throw a bouncing ball past my seven-month-old dog, my dog is off chasing the ball. It's like my attention lasts about that long, a bit like my dog. But the cross wants to stand there and over the next little season, the next period of time, seven, seven, six or seven weeks, and say, get a good eyeball on me. Let the eyes of your heart become enlightened by the hope of Jesus who went to the cross. So over the next couple of weeks, I'm praying that the cross will literally grab the attention of your life and begin to shape your life. What does it mean to be a people who walk by faith, walk in victory, walk in resurrection power, and yet at the same time, we're a people who understand something about suffering pain, and pain, and we're not scared to go there in the grit of all of that, that we might see the glory of Jesus at work. So come with me. Come with each other as we make this journey to the cross. Um, you know, we're living at a time where I, I really can't do too much news these days on television or any form of media or even on the social media streams. I, I, I really kind of can't do too much of it. I have to keep sort of hitting my preferences. No, I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that. And I don't want that. Um, because it, it, it's apparent that in many of our news cycles, because of the, the nature of the 24-hour news cycle that we live in now and the nature of living in a, a world that is streaming with information, just streaming with information, um, there's, there's a lot of hearsay that fills that space that, that is often referred to as news. Now, yeah, it may be news <laughs> in one sense, but it's probably not news in the historical sense of here's a representation and a presentation of something that has happened, it's been inquired of, it's been investigated, here's an understanding of what has happened, and here's a, a reasonable and fair interpretation of it. Here's the news. That, that, that kind of approach to news seems to be um, of another time. And we're now in a time, culturally, where news is not necessarily like that, but news is based on hearsay. Um, the other morning I cop just, just very briefly caught a few minutes while I was grabbing my, brewing my coffee. I flicked the TV on in the background and, you know, one of the um, morning news presenters was talking to... Uh, our local member, our local federal member, and um, and uh, basically the, the person said to them, the news reporter said to them, he prefaced his question like this. He said, well, they say that you guys have been missing in action. Where have you been? Because there's all these people with great need, and not to minimise any of the need, that's happened in Australia in the last couple of weeks with all the floods and everything, not to minimise any of that. But this news guy said, um, because you've been missing in action. And our state member in, in response on television said, 
now I'm not quoting him for fact here, but you can go back and look at it on Channel 9. But he said something to the effect of, well, I just absolutely refute what you've just said. That was his opening line. He said, here's the fact. And then he laid out all the statistics of what had actually taken place in response. Now, that upset the news guy. Because <laughs> the news guy was looking to build a story on hearsay that would satisfy a cultural expectation that is wanting to minister to, or not necessarily minister to, but meet the felt needs of a community rather than just trying to get the, the news. Here's the, here's the news. We're living at a time where hearsay is proclaimed as the truth. And Jesus had to confront some of this stuff. He was living at a time and a space historically where he was bringing the good news of the kingdom of God into the earth. And at the same time, there was this big swill of hearsay around him. There was a lot of hearsay. Everyone had an opinion about who they thought he was. And um, the reason why we're going to read Luke's gospel right now, Luke chapter 9, is, is Luke is working really hard to help people move from hearsay into a personal revelation, transformative experience of having encountered Jesus for who he truly is. Not according to hearsay, but according to who he truly is. Now, it'd be interesting if I just, you know, took some time to, uh, or maybe you've done this in your workplace or in your families around the dinner table or with some of your um, schoolmates or university mates where, you know, the conversations come up, come up about, well, who, who is Jesus? And ev everyone's got an opinion. Oh, he's, you know, some people will say, oh, he's just a crazy man. Someone that once was that died. Someone that thought he was a prophet but wasn't. And you, you, you'll get everything. Oh, and then you'll get to the other end of things. You'll get people saying, oh, he's, he's the lover of my soul. You know, oh, Jesus is my boyfriend. You know, you'll get, you'll get everything. Everyone's got opinions about who Jesus is. And a lot of that opinion is based on hearsay. The cross this Lent calls to each of us. It's Jesus calling us to come to him as he truly is. Not based on hearsay, but based on the revelation of who he truly is. And Luke, he goes, he, he, he does this amazing thing. He, he writes this gospel, this account and and. and um, Paul tells us in his letter to Timothy way, way later on in the story, he says, you know, when guys like Luke were writing this stuff down, they weren't just writing out of hearsay. They were being inspired by the very presence of the Holy Spirit on their life to try and capture the truth of who this Jesus really, really is. And I'm not trying to convince you of in some kind of reasoned way 
of the necessity to believe in Jesus. Jesus can do that for himself. He's more able to do that than I am to be able to convince anyone. He stands alone, though, and Luke is trying as his best as he can, under the inspiring help of the Holy Spirit, to write a gospel, to write this good news account that says, you know what, I've done the yards, I've gone and investigated, I've gone and asked the, the people that encountered him, I went and asked, and this is, this is what I have found. And he writes two, two books, he writes the, the gospel, and then he writes this other account called the, the, the Acts of the Apostles. But in Luke chapter 9, this is where it starts to get a little bit more pointed. Jesus has been busy doing what he does. And now he's about to head for the cross. And as we begin this journey, as we focus in on Jesus and his journey to the cross, let's ask the Holy Spirit to encourage each and every one of us to reveal to us the perceptions that we have laid onto Jesus because that's how and who we want him to be. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to take all that hearsay and move us on into maturity and grow us up into what it means to live in relationship with Jesus as Lord. You say, uh, you see, hearsay, and Paul does say it in Romans. He says, faith does come by hearing, and hearing because someone has proclaimed Jesus. So, hearing is important, but hearing is the first point of engagement. Hearsay is not the end of the story. Hearsay leads us on into a revelation. So God will speak to you. And he will speak to you directly. And he will speak to you through the people around you. And he will speak to you through your circumstances. And he will even speak to you when you pick up the scriptures every day to spend time with God. You will hear. But that is an invitation on into inquiry. Inquiry leads to revelation. You see, when Jesus did his stuff, Luke says, um, the news spread all about him. People came to inquire. Hearing leads to inquiry. Inquiry leads to revelation. And revelation leads to transformed lives. So if you're living on hearsay, this, Advent, uh, this Lent, Jesus is saying, come a little closer. Come a little closer. Let the hearsay become inquiry. Let the inquiry become revelation. And let the revelation become transformation. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 22. If we can go on to the next slide. Thanks, Isaac. That'd be great. If you haven't got your Bible with you, that's okay. It's up there on the screen. So
Thanks. Thanks, Sam. Good job, mate. Thank you. We can't do this stuff without people like Sam and others who <laughs> help us so that we can still have a voice box. Um, so Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 22. And over the next little while, we're going to journey through Luke, all of Luke chapter 9 as we prepare for, for Easter. But So Jesus has just fed like 5,000 people, and then he goes and spends some time in prayer. So Luke 9 verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them. Now, just can I just stop there for a second? When it comes to praying in private, there's two types of private. There's private, I'm on my own. And then there's private, I'm with others. Jesus is in the private space with others. To say praying privately means, get, you know, it's, it's a both-and thing. It's I'm praying on my own or I'm praying in this very sacred space with others. That's private, okay? Jesus is in that space. He's with his disciples and he asks them, who do the crowds say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets from long ago has come back to life. You've got to understand, most of the people that Jesus is hanging out with here and, and Luke and others, they're, they're coming from this you know, long Jewish God story. So they, they, know the, they know the names, they know the players, they know the who's who in the story. So Jesus asks them, who do the crowd say I am? And then he says in verse 20, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warns them not to tell this to anyone. Very interesting. And he said to them, the Son of Man, which is another interesting phrase, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Wow, there's a response. There's a response, probably not one that they were hoping to hear. When Peter said God's Messiah, we're going to unpack that in a second because it's really important. Because what Luke is trying to do in capturing this account is he's trying to establish once and for all who Jesus is. So having heard that, let's just set a little bit of background information here so that this has got some punch to it, some power to it, some revel revelation to it. So on the next slide, if we could just go to the next slide. Thanks, guys. So um, Luke, up until this point, as he's been inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's wanting to establish the identity of Jesus. This is his gospel. He's Without a doubt, he wants everyone to know that they know that they know that Jesus is Messiah, 
God's Messiah. We'll unpack that in a second. But it's all about identity. He wants to assist people to move from who they think Jesus is through to a personal conviction of revelation and transformation that they know that they know that they know who Jesus is on Jesus' terms. Luke wants people to understand Jesus is not the person that they want him to be. <laughs> Do you ever pray like that? I kind of load God up. I, I, I pray to him like, you know, quietly in the background. It's really my own ego saying, you know, if I was God, <laughs> if I was God, God, you'd be doing this, this and this. On my terms. But Luke here is trying to help people understand. Come to God on God's terms. And perceive and understand Jesus as he really is. You see, before Luke chapter 9 happens, where Peter pops out this two-word confession, God's Messiah. In Luke chapter 2, the supernatural account tells us that these angels from heaven peel back the heavens and they say to a group of people on a side of a hill, today in the town of David, a saviour's been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. That's in Luke 2.11. In Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, um, uh, there's this, all this activity going on around Jesus and it says the people were waiting expectantly and they were wondering in their hearts if John, meaning John the Baptist, because they were hanging around um, John the Baptist at the time, they were wondering if he might be the Messiah. In Luke chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus and the team, um, or it's actually they're in church and there's this person who's manifesting under the power of demonic influence and there's a manifestation of that taking place and Jesus gets to business and the demons say, go away, Jesus. <laughs> they know who he is. The demons know who he is. Go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? <laughs> you see, they know. They know the assignment of Jesus. 1 John 1 tells us Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. These guys, these spirit beings, these demonic beings, they know who Jesus is and they know when Jesus is around, it's not good for them. Their business gets upset, which is afflicting and oppressing people because Jesus sets people free. So they're like, get away. We know who you are. And then they say, you, this is the demonic powers. They're manifesting and their, their articulation of who Jesus is is this. They say, you are the Holy One of God. Now, these are big terms. What is the Holy One of God? Hang on to that one as well. These aren't just little glib descriptions. This is powerful stuff and it's important we know it. Because when we know it, it makes this even more powerful. And the effects of the cross and Jesus' obedience to the cross. In, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is um, forgiving people of their sin. He says, oh, your sin's forgiven to um, 
a man who was uh, born uh, disabled, and the question came to him, whose, whose fault is this? His sin, parents' sin, what? whose sin? And then Jesus just says, your sin's forgiven. Be healed. And then the, not, not the fact that healing came to the man, but the Pharisees got upset with the fact that Jesus said, your sin's forgiven. Because to say your sin is forgiven, the Pharisees are saying, hang on, mate. You, you, you are crossing the line because there is only one that can forgive sin, and that is God. Are you telling us you are God? That's exactly what Jesus is doing. In, in Luke chapter 7, 49, Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's home. And a, and a, and a broken woman, known for her, her, her lifestyle, considered to be excluded from God and sinful at every level, she comes and washes Jesus' feet. And he says in front of the Pharisees, her sins are forgiven. The Pharisees just go off their dial. Who does he think he is? Is he God? And Jesus is saying, that's exactly who I am. In 8.25, Jesus and the disciples are in a boat. They're going across the lake. Violent winds and storm builds up. Jesus figures it's a good time for a sleep. The disciples are panicked. They're freaking out. They're like, he doesn't care for us. Kick his feet. Hey, wake up, Jesus. Have you forgotten us? Don't you care about us? And he, and he gets up and he's, with his word, he rebukes the wind, the waves, and the creation itself and says, now be still. And it all came calm. Luke is trying really hard to let everyone know, anyone that would read, his, read the story of the gospel, of the good news, that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He is God come among us. He is Messiah. In, nine, in Luke 9, 9, King Herod, he's already taken off John the Baptist's head. He's killed him and taken off his head. And then Jesus is still going, doing business. And, and he's freaking out because of the reports that are taking place. And, 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 and he says, Herod says, oh my goodness, John the Baptist has come back to life. I took his head off, but he's come back to life. No, no, no. Jesus is not John the Baptist. Herod, as a good Jewish king, should have known the Messiah would come. But he was a broken Jewish king. And then you get to Luke 9. All of this is building and building and building and building to a revelation so that people wouldn't have to live by hearsay. And the exhaustion of having to live by hearsay, wondering if what we're living in is really true. How exhausting is it to live in the context of a culture and a time for us where there's just constant hearsay and the swill of hearsay and having to navigate it, it is exhausting. It is exhausting mentally. It is exhausting relationally. It is exhausting spiritually. It is exhausting economically. Hearsay every morning. 
We wake up, oh, interest rates could go up. Yeah, they're going to go up. No, they're on hold, they're on hold. The price of oil's going up. Well, actually, it is right now. <laughs> but just we live these moments to moment on hearsay and it's exhausting and we were never meant to live like that. And we were never meant to live from that place. We're meant to live from the being in relationship with God and who he says he is. Peter says in verse 20 there, you are God's Messiah. Let's jump to the next slide. Thanks, guys. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are God's Messiah. Now, that's a loaded, loaded, loaded word. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We could fill hours unpacking that, like literally hours. I won't do it to you this morning, but we could fill hours unpacking the depth and the breadth and the meaning of this word. Messiah was a word that first reared its head when God's people of Israel, long before Jesus, They'd been given their promised land. They'd been set free from the powers of Egypt and all of the gods of Egypt. And God had called them out with Moses and then set them on path to a promised land. And they'd been given their land and established their culture and their time. And they'd had some good kings and bad kings. But then ultimately, the, all the kings, would they failed. They failed. But the kings, it was interesting, they were the ones who were anointed by God and His Spirit to lead the people. And they had just messed up time and time again. All of them. The ones that we esteem as, you know, worth living, as, as an illustration of worth following, right through to the ones that were corrupt. They all made a mess of it. But they were anointed by God to be His, his leading presence for their people but these people had been so um, disobedient to the kindness of God that the surrounding nations invaded them first Assyria then Babylon and they became a people who were displaced from their home they lost their temple now you gotta remember remember earlier in the year where we spoke about the Lord's Prayer and how it's a temple prayer. It's a prayer where heaven and earth meet. They lost their heaven and earth location. They were displaced. They were taken into captivity. And they lived in exile. There's a lot of people right now who are being displaced all over the earth. Do all that you can, big and small. Pray, big, pray, small. Be generous financially, big and small, to all of those organisations and people that are helping those who are displaced by the powers that are at work in the earth through corrupt leaders. Help them. We're kingdom people. This is what kingdom people do. We understand because our story comes from a story of people who were displaced. Now, they were displaced for many reasons, but be for the sake of... Of those who are displaced. Um, they've been displaced. 
They're living under foreign rule and oppression and all of the implications of that. And their faith is seeking to survive because their faith as a people, they're trying to live their life being led by God's presence, even in captivity. And so God brings them hope. And what he does is he brings them these people who are, who are filled with his spirit called prophets. Guys like Ezekiel, guys like Jeremiah, guys like Isaiah, guys like Daniel. God brings these prophets along and these prophets start to espouse hope. There is a Messiah coming. There is an, an anointed one who's coming. Look, just, just, just quickly, I, if, if, you can go home and read this on your own, but in Isaiah chapter 11, let me quickly just read this to you. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse from his roots. A branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of God, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the sake of the poor on the earth. He will strike the earth with rod, with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Now, that same stuff can be found way, way at the end of the book, in the book of Revelations as well, where John the, John the Revelator sees Jesus in his goodness. He's like, it's the same dude that Isaiah's prophesying about. Then he goes on, the, look, listen to this. Listen to this. The wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. I don't know if you've seen too many documentaries on TV, but Animal Kingdom documentaries do not look like that. <laughs> Animal Kingdom documentaries look like the lion devouring the cattle. No way on earth do you want to be found near there, let alone put a child in that context. What the, what the prophet is saying that when the Messiah comes, he will be anointed by the Spirit of God and he will establish peace, such profound and powerful peace into the earth like has never been seen before other than when once our story began in the garden where God and man walked together in the cool of the day. There was no sickness and sin and brokenness and disease and famine. The prophets are saying that day will come. There will be a Messiah who is anointed. The cow will feed with the bear and their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Have you been to Australia Zoo where you've seen the crocodiles and they kind of hang some meat out there and they just... Well, that is the complete antithesis of what Isaiah is prophesying from the heart of God is going to come into the earth. It, it, it will shape your mind if you let it. And if you let it shape your mind, it will shape your heart. And it will give you a vision of what we're truly made for. And that's why it's hard to live in this space, in this broken moment in our world. 
The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put his hand into a viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. Just go back and read Isaiah chapter 11. Spend some time in that one this week. All right, guys? Spend some time in there. Profound. So it's in exile. These people are broken and hopeless and oppressed. And the the prophets come and say, this person is coming. And they continue to prophesy. And they like that. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We are going to get a king who's going to come and he's going to like right the world. But then Isaiah, if you go a little bit further on, he also prophesied that this same Messiah would be a suffering servant. Go and read Isaiah 53, where he would be stricken for the sake of the world to be set free. Isaiah's saying there's a, there's a Messiah coming. So on one hand, when Peter says, you're God's Messiah. He and the boys, they are just like, you ripper. The king's here. He's going to slay the, the, the works of, of Rome. He's going to establish his kingdom in the earth. And everyone's going to be at peace once and for all. And we get to be reestablished in our temple practices. Heaven and earth will kiss. And the whole world will come as all the nations gather around us as the people of God in the presence of God with our king leading the way. So they're like, you beauty. But then what did Jesus say on the back of Peter's confession? Let me just reread that to you. Don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. Because he knew if that word got out, people would take up arms, they'd take their pitchforks and hose, and they'd be like, right, let's take these Romans down once and for all. But not only that, he then fulfills the prophetic word of Isaiah 53, which he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Well, I'm not so sure we want that kind of Messiah. We just want the other sort. I just want the Messiah that's muscly and built and can deal with stuff. I don't want the Messiah that... goes there. Our Jesus, as he has fully revealed himself to be, is Messiah. He is the victorious, ruling, reigning Christos, the anointed one. He has come to fulfill the inaugurated and has inaugurated the promises of God as prophesied by Isaiah. He is the Messiah. He's the king but he is also the suffering servant. Jesus clearly identifies with the broken, the hurting, the displaced, and those who are dealing with sickness and pain. Our king is the king of everything for everyone. He is the Lord. This Lent, if we go to the next slide, thanks, guys. Jesus is Messiah, or that, that's, a, that's a Hebrew word, Messiah. And in the Greek, it's the word Christos. This Lent, Jesus 
asks you and me, and, and I want to encourage you, ask it to anyone you're spending any time with this, this, this Easter, leading up to Easter. Who, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do, you, who do you say that he is? You see, Jesus is the truth about God. This is why Luke writes. Not only is Jesus the truth about God, where Jesus says, when you see me, you see God. When I forgive sin, I do it because I'm God. When I calm the seas, it's because I am the maker of the seas. When the demons shudder and, and run scared, it's because they know I am the Lord and their time is limited. Jesus is Lord. He is the truth about God. Jesus is Christos. He is Messiah. And at the same time, he is the truth about humanity. He is the true picture of what a human being really looks like in relationship with our God. He is the truth about how to fix and save a broken world. He is the truth about establishing justice in the earth. There's a lot of people crying out for justice. Jesus is Messiah. He is justice. He is the truth about conquering sin and death. And Jesus is the truth about a restored a restoration for our world. So let me finish with these small thought. Who we feel Jesus is does not change who Jesus truly is. Get that. Get that into you. Who we feel Jesus is does not change who Jesus truly is. This is a very important statement because we're living in a time where we live by hearsay and we're living in a cultural context where we get to determine and are encouraged to be our own truth. Well, I had to, I had to be true to me. This is my truth. Jesus challenges that. Jesus engages with that. You see, particularly, uh, my heart is one that aches for the millennials in our, in, our, in our time because they've been sold into thinking, oh, like the thinkings are not new. Please, please, please. The, the generational thinkings are not new. The philosophies of today are not new. They are old philosophies, just rebadged and rebadged, and they keep coming up and popping up. And the one that keeps popping up is called Gnosticism. And that is the idea that if you just take a moment and look hard enough into yourself, there you will find the truth. And there, having found the truth that you know that you have established in yourself as you perceive the world to be, there you can live from that. This is called Gnosticism. Paul spends heaps of letters in the New Testament saying, hey, church, if there's one thing that's going to infect you, it's Gnosticism. Root it out at every place possible. That's why being in relationship with Jesus as Messiah, as Christos, as Lord, is one that says, I'm not looking in here for the answer. 
I'm looking to the one who has revealed himself to be God, the hope of the world. I'm looking to him. Now, it's, that's not a popular way to live right now. It's not popular. But I want to encourage you, please live from that place, from Jesus as Lord, not from your own ability to shape Jesus as the God you want him to be. Lay that down. Welcome Jesus as he truly is. And there we overcome living from this is my truth and where we get to define reality and where we get to shape our king in our own image and in ultimate reality we get to be our own messiahs. We give all of that away because of who Jesus is. It's not particularly well received right now. It's hard on the ears of those who don't want to hear that. But our story is one that we have been saved by this amazing grace that has just broken into our life. The kindness of God has revealed himself to us in Jesus that sets us free from the panic and the anxiety and the frustration of having to try and be our own truth that exhausts us. And we can finally go, no, no, Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is Christos. Jesus is the Lord. Live from there. Live from him. Let the world see Jesus is Christos this Easter. He is truth. He is Lord. This Advent, us, this this Lent, sorry, this Lent, Jesus asks us, who do you say I am? Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for people like Luke who, who were courageous enough to see you and follow you and then with the help of your spirit go from hearsay to inquiry to revelation to a transformed life. Thank you for, thank you for people like Luke who, under the inspiration of your spirit, caught the story of the truth of who you really are for the generations. And I pray this morning, Lord, as we begin to journey towards the cross, that this Lent we would all together move from hearsay into revelation. Of you, our Messiah. You're the saviour of the world. And you're the saviour of me. I give you thanks, Lord, for everyone in this room. And I give you thanks for the, the you know, our, our, our children and our grandchildren, wherever they are today, who may be running hard and fast from you. I thank you, Jesus, that you are right on their heels. 
in pursuit of them with your mercy and your revelation. And I thank you that your spirit is breaking the powers of the hearsay that has held them captive. And you're you're delivering them into the reality of who you really are, Jesus. You're God. And this morning, Lord... Help us to answer that question. Who do you say I am? Friends, take a moment. As Jesus draws near to you. Who do you say I am? It's profoundly personal. It's profoundly cosmic and huge at the same time. And I thank you, Jesus, you're the Messiah. In your name we pray. Amen. For those of you who've been joining us online today, we want to say thanks for joining us. And we pray God's blessing on you and we invite you to join us next time you're with us.